the truth is certainly there that uh, there's nowhere we can go that he can't find us and hasn't already seen coming. He is overall, he is amazing in the way uh, he's able to work with us, our choices, and still he is sovereign God. Well, at this point, we'll go ahead and and, uh, dismiss the little ones to uh, Children's Church in the back. And turn this on here, and you're probably looking at this wondering, just how confused did the preacher get over this daylight savings time thing? I thought I'd fall back a year. How's that? No. Um, Actually, you know, with Halloween this week and, you know, going everywhere and seeing that, I came up with an idea for a new holiday when I was out and about. So I thought I'd share it with you, and we put this up here. And it's too late to celebrate it this season, but next year I was thinking that we could, you know, we have uh, Pastor Appreciation Week, which I kind of appreciate that. Um, uh, But besides that, I have another idea for something called Ministerial Pride Day. Don't you think in this time, in this day and age, that could be a keeper? Ministerial Pride Day. And I believe the best part of this suggestion is the timing. You see, I think we should have Ministerial Pride Day, and I think we should put it on the calendar for next year for September 22nd. And believe it or not, this is scriptural, because September 23rd is the first day of autumn, and as the Bible says, pride will certainly come before a fall. All that to get to that. I'll be here all week. It's too bad, you know. They say to kick things off with a good joke for an icebreaker, but that was the best I could come up with, so moving on. Well, the name of today's message is A Matter of the Heart. And as you know, as we have been worshiping God today uh, in communion, uh, in praise, with the special we heard That's hopefully where we've been focusing all morning. If you've noticed some of the songs, the subject matter throughout them. Where's yours? Where's my heart? Where are our hearts at this morning? This is what we're going to jump into this morning with our text. Paul says this morning, Romans chapter 2, verse 29. He says, but a Jew is one inwardly and circumcision is a matter of the heart. It's a matter of the heart. By the Spirit, not the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. We're going to dig into, uh, dig into this deeper. Uh, but that part of the text, of course, gave us our title for the morning. The answer to this question, where is our heart? It makes a difference for the people of God. That is, do we have hearts for God? So far this sermon series, Roman through Romans, if you uh, were here with us several weeks ago, we started talking about how the gospel, the gospel message, this finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, this alone justifies us in Christ. This alone provides our justification, not any work we might do as Christians. Then we went on, we went on to discuss last week how our works don't justify us before God. Yet, ju- yet God will judge us someday. We talked about that last week. God will judge us someday, whether we're Christian or not Christian, for the things that we've done. Now, this morning, by asking, where is our heart? We tie these two concepts together. God's finished work of salvation, along with our works, because of salvation. And because of my heart for God, I will desire to please God. 
You know, we can have a heart for all kinds of things in this world, can't we? All kinds of things. But ultimately, we were created to love our Creator. That's why we're here. Who or what we love matters in this world. Now let's dig deeper into this uh, text this morning in just a moment. Sounds kind of strange, maybe, but one of the ministries in which I look forward to serving is bereavement. You may have heard me mention this before. It may sound like a difficult ministry to have, but it's, it's kind of an honor. I consider it an honor to serve families in their time of loss. Years ago, uh, I sat through a funeral myself for a loved one. And I was very bothered at the time that the service seemed incredibly inappropriate for the person who passed away. And at that time, I decided that in ministry, I would do all I could in the future as a funeral officiant for the family I was serving, to match tone, to be careful of the substance of my service in accordance with their wishes. I'm asked from time to time, you know, is it challenging? Is it difficult to officiate a funeral for a service for an individual who passes away without, as far as we know, knowing the Lord? Is that difficult? You know, my answer to this is, is more, while it's mostly just unfortunate, it doesn't change my commitment to serving that family who is grieving. It doesn't change that. It's my belief that to honor the person who has passed away, to serve the family, I can highlight the positive aspects of that person's life without ever making a judgment call about their salvation, without ever attempting to pray them into heaven or etc. I can't do those things. But I can ask, where in this person's life was their heart? Who or what did they love? Whether we've made this commitment, followed God in this life, there are usually a few positives which are universal, aren't there? I, I once uh, met with a family uh, to learn about the woman uh, who had passed away, the family matriarch she was. The family uh, was not, as far as I could tell, as far as I could glean from conversation, made up of Christian people. And even the woman's own children admitted that there were, I'll put it this way, few saintly aspects to her life that they wanted mentioned at her memorial. I'm thinking, we're off to a great start here. Bit of yikes. But there was one matter of the heart they could mention to me. She loved her grandkids. The lady loved her grandkids. That was, that was what they could come up with. Now, obviously, loving one's grandkids doesn't save their soul. But the notion within that family that this matter of the woman's heart should be mentioned, could be built upon for her memorial service, this is substantial, isn't it? It tells us something. Who or what we love, it matters in this life. It matters, and it's going to be shown when this life is over. It's going to be revealed. We should keep this in mind. Well, in my introductory message to the sermon series, I mentioned how the church at Rome, uh, Paul's audience for our text, consisted of a couple different uh, groups of people. Paul was writing to the Hebrews, uh, some of whom were Judaizers. That meant, again, they, they believed that those old Jewish customs should be kept by the new church. This was important to them. Paul was also writing to uh, the Gentile converts uh, who'd come from this life of paganism, idolatry. Uh, and Paul knew the matters of the heart with which both Jew and Gentile were struggling, 
with which they both were struggling. The Jews who had left Jerusalem, possibly founded the church at Rome after Pentecost, were used to thinking of themselves as the chosen people of God. Regardless of how they approached his throne, they were good with God. This situation uh, was probably made worse by the Jewish exile out of Rome. You see, uh, the Jews had actually been ordered to leave Rome by the Emperor Claudius in AD 49. This is mentioned in Acts 18.2. This decree would last for five years. By the time these Jewish Christians return to their home country, congregations, they're going to find them led by Gentiles. And just imagine how you would feel if your particular group, ethnic, cultural, was forced to leave town, and when you came back to town, you found another group was running the show. Might not make you a hate monger, but surely it would guarantee some tension, a few disagreements here and there, uh, probably in the church. Especially if, once again, you, you thought of yourself, it had just been this way throughout your family for generations, as one of the chosen ones, keepers of the law of Moses. That's what it meant to be Jewish. So what does Paul do in our text? What does he do? He lovingly drops a bomb. <laughs> lovingly drops a bomb on the church, making it clear that neither Jew nor Gentile were anything unless obedience to God's word, was the matter of their hearts. This is what he tells them. And I want you to think about how this text would have shocked them, would have been a little difficult on their ears. Follow with me here. Uh, verse 12, Romans chapter 2. Paul writes this, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires. They are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So again, Paul is speaking to these Judaizers, these Jews who are arguing among the, the Roman congregations. By the way, uh, churches didn't meet under you know, the big buildings like, like we think about here, uh, under the emperor. Uh, they met in houses, in house churches. This is what the church looked like. Judaizers, back from Rome, were struggling to get past their old traditions. They were a part of who they were. And I'm sure it wasn't out of maliciousness that uh, these aspects of Jewishness were being pushed on the Gentiles, such as circumcision. I'm sure the Jewish believers looked at the Gentile believers and spiritual positions they once held, probably thought, well, these guys are spiritual babes. They don't, they don't really know what they're doing. They've got pagan roots, come from immorality. They come from the belief of many gods. These, these spiritual infants have to learn about the one true God. How? Well, like we did. The observance of the law given to Moses. I mean, it made sense. It made sense that this kind of tension would come to be in the Roman church. But the time for this kind of tension in Christ was over. It was over. In fact, intense persecution for anyone who claimed the name of Jesus was right around the corner under the hands of Nero. Paul is making it clear for this young church the goal is not to fit any old traditions. The goal is not to expand uh, your Jewishness, 
but to be made new like Jesus. Not to fit the old tradition, not to look good on the outside, but to be changed from the inside out. For both those who once kept the old laws and those who were foreign to it, it was time for a heart check. Because following God was and is nothing, if not a matter of the heart. That's where we're coming from this morning. Surely we can understand, though, how Paul's words would be difficult. Would have been difficult on the Jewish people. God did choose them as the bloodline for his incarnation. He chose them for this. Told them about this for thousands of years. They had also, through Moses, been given the law. But the problem was they didn't follow it. Verses 12 and 13. This point, it didn't matter. And you know what also didn't matter? The fact that the Gentiles had come from idolatry and depravity. By their hearts for Christ and God's people, they had become, as Paul says, a law to themselves. Verse 14. So the spiritual playing field between Jew and Gentile was made equal in Christ's church. This was very good news. This was good news. But if the uh, Jewish Christians in the church at Rome couldn't get past their religious customs, the requirements of the past and embrace a heart for Jesus, embrace a heart for others. There was the danger of turning away the very people who needed to hear the gospel. This was the danger. And so Paul writes, follow along with me again. Verse 17, But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. And then Paul goes on to make the same point about hypocrisy among God's people that he did previously. We talked about this last week, about judging others. Verse 21, follow with me. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? Well, you preach against stealing, do you steal? You, you who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. And then Paul cuts to the problem, you might say the heart of the problem. Verse 24, for as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. We know too well today, and if we can't come up with these in our, in our mind, I'll give you a few examples in a moment. We know today how detrimental it can be outside the church when we don't practice what we preach. How detrimental, right? It was surely happening around this time with this church in Rome in regards to this old guard with the Judaizers and the unbelievers. The church has a nasty habit of saying one thing and doing another. Well, how do we see it happen today? Let me give you a few examples. A little different, but the same. On April 9, 1988, the following headline came across the New York Times. Maybe some of you remember this situation. Church defrocks Swaggart for rejecting its punishment. I'm not going to go into the sins of Jimmy Swaggart, but if you don't remember Jimmy, Google him. A similar headline graced CBS News on May 7, 2014. Vatican reveals how many priests defrocked for sex abuse since 2004. Still another example comes from ABC News on April 11, 2018. Megachurch pastor steps down amid misconduct allegations. 
And speaking of Google, it only takes a curious person about 15 seconds to go online and bring up recent articles with titles such as these. Here's another one. 13 famous pastors caught doing unholy things. One blogger in ministry writes, In recent years, five of my friends who are pastors have lost their ministries because of moral failure. Five. So let's be honest, friends. Are, are there names that you you can think of, maybe come to your mind, associated with the church, who've said one thing and done another, who've disappointed you by their private lives that were made public. What are some behaviors, what are some sins, what are some contradictions you've shrugged off that you really shouldn't? Because those are affecting someone, I promise you. We're so quick to give God a bad name in the church and the world. They seize this. How do they respond? Verse 24, hey, you know, if this Christianity thing, if this isn't working out for Christians, for church leaders, for mega pastors, I sure don't need it, right? I can do better on my own than those guys can. These conflicts of the heart, they cost us. They cost us. But what's the problem? What's the problem here? What was the problem for these Judaizers at that church of Rome 2,000 years ago? What's the problem for the Christian that expects heaven on Sunday morning when they come to warm the pew for a couple hours, only so they can live not like heaven, but like the other place, Sunday afternoon through Saturday night? Why are there so many ministers asked to step down from so many churches in this country across the news and as reported on social media? What's the problem here. Well, look with me at 2 Chronicles chapter 26, verse 16 for the answer. We're actually going to start with the second half of verse 15. This is about King Uzziah of ancient Judah and where he went wrong as a leader. Well, the Bible says this, And his fame spread far, for he was marvelously helped till he was strong. Verse 16, But when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. What? Isaiah grew what? He grew proud. He grew proud. He had a heart issue. He had a heart issue. We're sometimes tempted to blame other things in the church or something else altogether. Author uh, Gerald Weinberg, who wrote on the subject of computer programming, is most famous in this field for saying, no matter what the problem is, it's always a people problem. It's always a people problem. But you know, if people were the problem altogether, I don't think God would have made us. It's not the people that are the problem in the church. It's pride. Every time. Every time there's a contradiction between what we do and what we say we do, it's pride. Pride kills the faith. You see, Jesus talks about becoming like children to inherit the kingdom of heaven in Matthew 18. But too often, God's kids abuse the title when we do the very things we claim to be against. It doesn't have to be lying, cheating, and stealing among our brethren. It can just be control issues, self-righteousness, a sense of entitlement, our pride that keeps this old guard, these old ways in place, turning off the community around us. Forget ministerial pride day because pride will indeed come before a fall. I saved that terrible joke. Our heart for God or our lack of a heart for God on the inside, it will be seen by someone on the outside, and that's guaranteed. And so Paul goes on 
He goes on in verses 25 through 29. He continues to talk about outside matters, how things look on the outside. For this keeping the right appearance, making who you are, had been such, such an issue for God's people. And when it came to old customs, old customs of the law, Paul could have chosen some other things. He could have talked about, uh, he could have talked about Sabbath observance. He could have mentioned diet as it applied to the Roman Christians, but he didn't, or at least he wasn't there at this point. He may get to that later in the letter. Just a chapter into his writing, though, where does Paul go? Well, he brings up this issue of circumcision. Why does he go there? Well, circumcision had been, had been considered nearly as important to being a Jew, nearly as important to being one of God's people as being chosen by God. Nearly as important. And so Paul writes this, follow with me, verse 25. Paul says, For circumcision indeed is a value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly nor is circumcision outward and physical. So what's Paul saying here? What was, what was the point of this custom in the first place? Well, this word circumcise, it literally means to cut around as a religious rite. It was required of all Abraham's descendants as a sign of the covenant God had made them. This goes back to Genesis 17. When the males were circumcised, they literally carried this lifelong mark that they were God's people. If a descendant of Abraham refused this, they were declaring themselves not one of God's people within their family. And this is why God gets so angry with Moses when Moses fails to circumcise his son in Exodus chapter 4. This is a big deal, and we read it, and we're like, why is God going to kill him? Well, it was a requirement. What Paul is saying here, circumcision was never, ever for Israel just a matter of the physical male body. Can you guess what it was a matter of? Read verse 29. A Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a, say it out loud with me, a matter of the heart. Matter of the heart. By the spirit, not by the letter. Matter of the heart. Under the old Jewish guard with all the do's and all the don'ts, ten commandments that start off at ten, but when you break it down, you got about 613 commandments in there. These were to start within, flow to the outside. Jewish people didn't get this. They didn't understand this. Our service to God can't run in any other direction, in any age. Now, now maybe in the Church of Christ today, maybe we get a kind of, huh, moment here with the text. Maybe we don't understand what in the world this particular medical procedure has to do with holiness. And that's okay. We live under a different time. We're not nomads living in the desert. We have different standards of cleanliness today. Thank God, circumcision isn't as big of a deal as it was thousands of years ago. So tell you what, let's read through these last few verses of Romans. Chapter 2 again. <clears throat> but let's take out the word circumcision for us today under Christ, under new covenant, and let's drop in a different word. Let's drop in the word confession. Because we talk so much about confession in the church, about how we need to confess our sins to one another, about how God intends for us to be people of repentance and then confession before baptism. 
In fact, in the Church of Christ, we have someone traditionally stand up front and recite what we call the good confession, don't we? And like circumcision, the good confession is an outward statement. The New Testament even says it's required of us to confess Jesus Christ. But let me ask you this. What happens if we stand up in front of the congregation and confess Jesus Christ to save our out, Savior outwardly and then refuse to follow Jesus? Did the confession work? I mean, what if we don't make confession of Christ a matter of the Christian heart? What if we don't do that? So read with me again. Go back through this. Follow with me again in the text. And I'm going to change some words now just for this example. See if it doesn't speak to us today. For confession indeed is a value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your confession becomes unconfession. Does that make a little bit more sense to us? So if a man who has not confessed, keep the precepts of the law, will not his lack of confession be regarded as confession? Then he who has not confessed but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and have confessed but break the law. Do you see, do you see the thinking here? For no one is a Christian who is merely one outwardly Christian, nor is confession outward and physical. When we get up here, when we say that confession, but a Christian is one inwardly, and confession is a matter of the heart by the Spirit not by the letter. Now, I'm not intending to alter God's word today, but I want to drive home the point to you that what's done on the outside has to begin right here every time. And it's been that way for thousands of years under God. As a new Christian, we can get praise from others in the church, verse 29, that's okay. But if our confession of Christ isn't for real, it's not going to last my Christianity is probably not for real either, you see. When the Jewish Christians were pushing the circumcision, this tradition on the Gentile Christians, it was just as unspiritual as if we pushed every unsaved visitor to come in the doors of this church building to get up front of everyone at the end of the service and confess Jesus without knowing if they even knew who he was. Circumcision on the inside. Confession from the heart. This was the important factor for God's people. Don't you find it interesting? The Jewish people once literally had a monopoly on the word of God. It was theirs. It was given to them through Moses. But just because they had their words out here, it didn't mean it had made an impact here. I've said this before. My dad said years ago, the point is not to get you through the Bible. The point is to get the Bible through you. To get God's word through you. God's people means connecting the saving work of our great God right there to the call to good works in him. And there's only way to start with that process. It's not about who we are. It's not about the name we have or the church group we came from. It's not about our traditions. It has nothing to do with our nation or our background. It's about where we keep this where this heart is at. Because we have a heart for God today, we will desire to please him from the inside out. And that's ultimately what chapter two of the book of Romans is all about, Charlie Brown. But where is the heart of a recent convert? You know, sometimes that's hard to see right away. We might not always be able to tell but God knows, doesn't he? 
God knows. An article from this month in the National Review reads of one recent convert. He's just the figure to bring a needed message that our society should reconsider what it deems praiseworthy. And that is, longtime secular rapper Kanye West has just made this year a very public, shockingly candid series of statements revealing a heartfelt conversion to Christianity. And this appears to be a Christianity, this article says, quote, bears no resemblance to the vague spiritualism that is often associated with celebrity conversions. The title of Kanye West's newest album is Jesus is King. And this article continues, the lyrics to each song in Jesus is King aren't just Christian. They are, quote, shockingly Christian. And I like that, shockingly Christian. As Christianity should be to the world, right? Should be shockingly Christian, amen? The article continues, this is not an album of feel-good Christian spirituality aimed as a message of uplift. Throughout the whole of Kanye West's latest work, the rapper is in many respects deeply critical of the modern world and culture. There are calls for a focus more on the family than on individual glory. Now maybe we say, I don't care, I don't like rap music. But folks, this is culturally significant. This is deeply culturally significant. Whether we care for this man or his work or the genre or not. He goes on here, this celebrity quote is now applauding the home and family endorsements of establishments such as Chick-fil-A, which to some means endorsing bigotry in this day and age. Kanye says social media obsession should be exchanged for family prayer. He characterizes fatherhood as a virtue and attacks materialism. The article adds, West calls for worshiping Christ take such effect that this album is arguably more Christian than what most contemporary Christian artists can similarly muster. The writer of this article, Bias Unknown, then notes, if what's on the outside of Mr. West comes from within, quote, there's no telling what he will not be willing to confront. And he concludes, this is a figure with just enough audacity just enough celebrity to get people to reconsider their lives. Time will only tell of what will come from this radical conversion. As expected, social media and entertainment news has had a heyday with this latest celebrity conversion. They had something similar 40 years ago when folk singer Bob Dylan topped the charts with his post-conversion song, Gotta Serve Somebody. They might be the devil, or they might be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. I just always wanted to do that up here, sorry. I'm a fan. And I can't do the Kanye thing, so. No. I don't know about you, but I'm praying for Kanye West. I'm praying for this man. I'd like to think Kanye, like so many of us, has put pride in his life aside before he has a great fall. As far as what his impact as a Christian with a platform may have for the kingdom of God, I don't know. Time will tell. Fruit will tell. But as I pray for Kanye, this is my prayer. I, I don't pray for the world to just see another successful minister with a platform. And I don't just pray for more name-dropping of Jesus in some rapper's interview. 
I don't even pray for another gospel album with the guy's name on it. But I pray that for Kanye West, just as I do for you, for me, that beyond our repentance and our confession and our baptism and our obedience to God's word, that this eternal matter of the Christian faith is a matter of this man's heart. That's what I pray, that it's a matter of this man's heart from the inside out. So I'll ask you again this morning as we close, who or what do you love, my friends? Where is your heart? Do you have a heart for God in this world? The answer to this question is going to make all the difference in the world. Let's pray. Lord, I, I, I thank you. I praise you, O Lord, for your word. As a matter of faith from the heart, we, we know of all the names over all the generations, the thousands of years that have turned their heart to you. Lord, we know before you came to us, we had names such as Abraham, had names such as Samson, had names such as Joshua and David, Solomon. When these individuals have had a heart for you, when their heart was on your kingdom, making much of your name in this world, we see the difference that that makes. And Lord, in grace, we see how you were able to change Paul's heart. And he gave up everything as a man who knew everything, had it all in this world as well. heart for you. We see the difference, Lord, through your word. I thank you so much for your word. But Lord, I pray as, as people that live today and in the time where we, we await your return, that we would remember that someone is watching us too. The world sees us. And we have an example each and every day in this world to let our hearts be on fire for you to be changed by you, to let your word lead us, to let your spirit guide us. Lord, I thank you for each and every decision that has been made in this congregation, outside of it, to believe and be baptized into you. But Lord, may our decision to follow only begin there. May we not drop out of the race when we're just getting going. But remember, you desire our hearts. You're jealous for us. You love us. You're going to come back from, for us someday. May we be faithful. May we be faithful to you. Lord, I... I pray that each one of us, no matter what we're struggling with in this world, whether it be things, whether it be materialism, whether it be an addiction of some kind, whether it be our, our priorities are out of whack or our, uh, we have a hatred for a neighbor or a brother, 
that our anger get the best of us. We've just not made a commitment to love our family the way we should and stand up and, and lead them. Lord, wherever, wherever we lack in our heart for you, I pray you would convict us. Lead us, Lord. Help us remember there is a love that went all the way to the cross at Calvary for us. Help us to live the way you died. With a heart for the broken, with a heart for the lost, with a heart for those that do not have. Help us to have a heart for you and for our neighbor. Lord, like the old song, we desire a closer walk with you. In all that we do, help us remember that words are important, but they're only important if we're going to live that way. Help us to truly love the way you first loved us. And it is in the name of Jesus I pray these things. Amen. Well, our invitation song is, as you may have guessed, I give you my heart. If you haven't yet made a decision to give God your heart, if you haven't yet decided, I want to be made a new person, a new creation, begin that journey of the heart. Repent, confess, go down into those waters of baptism, come up a new creation, and begin the journey back home. We invite you to do so as we stand and sing this invitation song. If you have any questions today about what we went into, it gets a little deep here in Romans with some of the theology and the history. Uh, see me or see one of the elders and we'll be glad to talk to you more about it. Uh, we love you so much and God loves you so much and uh, he just wants you to follow him home. He has such a big heart for you. Let's stand and celebrate his love for us with this invitation song.